Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff as we usually do at the outset of each episode. I wanted to give a shout out to some super fans of ours in Texas in the Dallas Austin area. Charlotte and Andrea are big fans of the show and they're sending their children back to us to Suffolk University and Quinpiac College in Connecticut to play hockey at a high level. So I just wanted to say thank you guys for listening and your kids must be very smart to get into those schools and I wish them all the luck in the world going forward. Thank you so much for your kind words and your email, and all the best. Thanks again. All right, so we had a big response to our episode on the House of Horrors in Blackstone, Massachusetts. And I cut that episode a little short. I I really just couldn't do it anymore. What I wanted to add and let you guys know is just a few days after the police made their final search and they found those corpses of the babies in the home, the house had to be torn down. They gave the owner an opportunity to come in and have it cleaned and all that. But I think on second thought, the town administrators said that this house is just too far gone. It was permeated with roaches and rodents, and it was so nasty. Can you imagine that they had to tear down, I I don't know, a $300,000 house? And I don't think this woman was compensated for it, but a lot of people have some guilt in that case there, and they don't get away with it. I know they beat the system legally, but they're going to have to answer. But they're just so dumb. I mean, will they even be able to handle the question at the pearly gates? I don't know. If anybody ever asks you, Do you know anybody who's gotten away with murder? Those two jamokes did. They got away with murder time and time again, and it's horrific. But Also, a friend of the show, Scott, sent in some excellent research to Boston Confidential regarding Adam Montgomery. If you remember, it was the case of Harmony Montgomery. She went missing, and it was pretty evident that Adam Montgomery had something to do with it. He had since been jammed up on various firearms charges, and it's broken in the research that Scott sent us. Adam Montgomery has been named as the perpetrator of the murder of Harmony Montgomery by punching her. Man, what a tough guy this is. He punched her, and she never recovered, and he hid her body somewhere, and it sounds like he's about to be charged. So maybe this case, this horrific case, is coming to an end. 
I wanted to add to this that people who say selling drugs and abusing drugs is a victimless crime, well, I'm here to tell you that Harmony Montgomery is a fatal victim of drug abuse. That's what happened to her, okay? So it's not victimless. We have to get our act together on drugs. We just do. It's killing 100,000 Americans each year. So over the last three years, we've lost 300,000 Americans. We lost 58,000 guys in the Vietnam War over a decade, and people were outraged. Where's the outrage over this? People dropping dead in the street. The legalization of heroin and its derivatives have ruined this country, and it will take decades to get back to where we were before this foolishness, this soft on crime bullshit permeated this United States. There is no recreational use of heroin. It's the most addictive substance known to man. So stupid what we did. And if you want evidence of that, just go down to Methadone Mile in Boston or anywhere in Philadelphia, Seattle, Portland, all over the place. Every major city has these open-air drug markets where people are walking around like it's Auschwitz, okay? In the United States, if you're not offended by that, if you don't think we've done wrong, you're just not paying attention. It's not compassion to allow people to fester in drug addiction and mental illness and defecate in the streets like they're pachyderms. Sorry. Smarten the hell up. I see no light at the end of the tunnel here. Nobody is, in fact, waking up. So I guess we march on through this madness. All right, guys. I guess we don't have to jump into the Wayback Machine today. We're only going back to 2018. And today's episode is about the murder of James Whitey Bulger in October 2018 while he was in prison. Naturally, I remember the story when it was in the news, and immediately people thought, did the FBI set this up? Oh, but don't worry, they wouldn't do that. But seemingly, it was everyday government incompetence. Bulger was being transferred from a prison in Florida to the federal prison in Hazleton, West Virginia. And that prison is big boy prison and... It had a ton of problems. I believe it had uh, inmate murder just weeks before Jim Bulger arrived there. And Bulger only lasted about 12 hours in this new prison. And everybody in the prison, including the guards and the inmates, knew that James Whitey Bulger was going to be arriving at a certain time. And he did. So it just makes me wonder, do the inmates really run these facilities? Crazy question, right? I know I've got a lot of corrections officers out there in the audience. Shoot me an email. Let me know what's up. Barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys. So just a quick overview of James Whitey Bulger. And we should probably do an episode on Whitey Bulger as a standalone episode at some point in the near future. But everybody really knows the case. But just a brief overview. James Whitey Bulger was the head of the Irish Mafia in Boston. It was called the Winter Hill Gang. And they worked kind of hand-in-hand with 
La Casa Nostra in the North End and in Rhode Island. But they were a standalone unit. They paid tribute to the Italians in town, but they were free to do most of what they wanted. And most of what they wanted in the 60s to the 80s had to do with gambling. They were centered in Charlestown when Howie Winter was the boss of this organization. James Whitey Bulger took the helm after Howie Winter went away to prison. I believe it was on a horse racing beef, but it was probably good for Howie Winter's health that that happened because James Bulger was right behind him in the pecking order. And this crew had Stevie Flemmy, James Bulger, Matarano, who's a, just a massive hitman, and they were a fearful group. James Whitey Bulger was from South Boston, and there was a gang war going on in Southie at the time. I believe it was between like the Gustins and the Mullins, if I have that right. I'm not sure. But he kind of emerged from that and went to Howie Winter and told Howie Winter he could consolidate the Southie issue and come out with one organization, really. And that's about what happened. He was making millions, not as much as Jerry Hanjulo across the bridge in the North End, but he was the top gangster in town. And it came out later, probably by the 80s, the majority of South Boston, where I lived, knew that Bulger had to be an informant because nobody has this run of luck. He'd just leave warehouses full of smuggled marijuana and the police would show up. There was just so many coincidences. It was pretty well known that he was an informant. The other side of the coin, which is also so Boston, is his brother, Bill Bulger was probably the most powerful man in Massachusetts politics at that time. He was Speaker of the House, and Bill Bulger was said to have been more powerful than the governor, who rotates in every four or eight years. Bulger was there to stay. He was the mainstay and consolidated his power. So on one level, you have the head of Boston organized crime, James Whitey Bulger, and the head of the state's political life, Bill Bulger, who was a very educated man, by the way, and did a lot for the state. But people say he had a soft spot for Jim, his little brother, I believe, and took care of him as best he could. But at a certain point, there was no helping James Bulger. James Bulger, in his youth, was uh, quite a hellion around South Boston, and he started doing bank robberies, and he did them in the Midwest. And he gets caught out there, and he ends up serving time in Alcatraz, believe it or not. And while at Alcatraz, they had a program that if you volunteered, it would shave time off of your sentence. So James Whitey Bulger signs up for this, Lo and behold, it's a LSD test funded by the CIA, and he claimed he was irreparably harmed by this study. It turned him into somebody else, the whole BS story. But being in Alcatraz left James Whitey Bulger safe because there was a big gang war during this time frame when he was in jail between the McLaughlins and Winter Hill. And I'm talking, I don't know, hundreds of people were killed for this. 
And this was kind of the formulation of the Winter Hill Gang after the McLaughlins got knocked off in Somerville and in Charlestown. So guys, by 1975, Whitey Bulger had become an informant for the FBI, and his handler was another guy from South Boston by the name of John Connolly, maybe one of the most corrupt FBI agents in history probably right under Boston FBI agent H. Paul Rico. Now, on the surface, it would seem that John Conley had recruited his neighbor, Whitey Bulger, to become an informant for the FBI. But I think it may have been the other way around. John Conley was recruited by Whitey Bulger. Conley would end up so corrupt, he stopped cashing his FBI paychecks One time, an administrative assistant at the FBI found like 10 uncashed paychecks in Conley's top drawer. So he was taking money directly from Winter Hill, and that would all come out through various trials, Stevie Flemmy, Whitey Bulger, and later John Conley himself. So guys, by 1994, this festering wound of corruption in Boston was pierced, and They indicted James Whitey Bulger, and the deal that Bulger had with FBI agent Conley was that if there were indictments, they wanted a head start. And although John Conley had retired from the FBI, he still maintained close contact with agents in the field. And one of those guys called John, thinking he could trust him, and says, yeah, indictments just came down for Bulger, Flemmy, and everybody else. And at that point, John Conley goes to the South Boston Liquor Mart and tells Kevin Weeks what happened. I think he later spoke to Jim Bulger, but that was the head start they were looking for. And just on the side, Stevie Flemmy got the same information and decided not to run right away. And the next time he came out of his house, the police were there to arrest him. And it was over for Stevie Flemmy. But at that point, 1994, Bulger goes on the run. Everybody had said he keeps go bags all over the place. And he could be gone forever in a moment's notice. And that's what happened. He goes on the road eventually with his girlfriend. And poof, he's in the ether. Because, man, he's got cash everywhere. He's got cash. He's got weapons. He's got fake IDs. So this is 1994. As this ramps up, everybody is complaining about the FBI saying, yeah, sure, they're really looking for somebody who's going to tell more information about this evil corruption within the FBI. So everybody was kind of smirking, saying, yeah, they're really looking hard for him. And quite frankly, I don't think they were. Bulger does get captured in 2011. Imagine that from 94 to 2011. He's on the lam in sunny California, just north of Los Angeles. And when they got to the apartment he was laying low in, there were guns all over the place and cash, all kinds of stuff. So... They got him. They brought him back to Boston. He faced federal trial at the courthouse down on Boston's waterfront. He ends up convicted of a host of charges involving all kinds of racketeering 
and 11 murders. I think it was originally like 20 murders he was charged with. I think they hooked him on like 11 or something like that. By that point in the trial, nobody was really paying attention because it was just so putrid. We should probably go over that at some point. But he ends up with two life sentences on a federal beef, and he goes off to prison. So in these intervening years, he's transferred from various prison to prison. But most recently, Bulger had been imprisoned at a, I think it's a pretty high-level prison, Coleman Prison in Sumterville, Florida. And he had become a little bit of a problem there. At least that's what prison officials said. At one point, he threatened a nurse who he felt was not treating him with respect or denying medication. And this was an ongoing issue. And he allegedly threatened her, like, your day of reckoning will come. Not a super direct threat. And he's, what, 89 years old at that point. But he had personally choked to death two women. So I could understand the nurse's fear if it was, in fact, a female nurse, you know. So she has to report him and does so. So he's eventually transferred out of the Florida prison and sent to like a transfer center in Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, he goes to Hazleton, West Virginia. Now, the federal prison in Hazleton is big boy prison, guys. And the real deal is mobsters in there, high-level mobsters, Italian, like, capos and stuff like that. And more than that, guys, there were people in organized crime from the Northeast. And everybody in the country knew about James Whitey Bulger because he was number two on the FBI's 10 most wanted list right under Osama bin Laden. So to send this guy who was an organized crime godfather, if you will, and you send him to prison, a prison which is known for violence and organized crime people, right? Because just before James Bulger got there, between a month and two weeks prior, there was a vicious stabbing. You know, there's homicides all the time. It's a difficult place to do time. And he's 89 years old at this point. And don't get me wrong, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. But to send him to a prison where there's organized crime people that he may have crossed paths with, man, it's the stupidest thing known to man. But it's the federal government, right? And that's how this goes. And it's so bad, right? It's so incompetent. It makes you think this has to be a conspiracy. I don't think it was. I think it was just dumb people who get complacent. Do you really care what happens to James Bulger? Not really. I guess you're supposed to fake it in that industry, right? But he gets sentenced to Hazleton, but he's not there long. And before Bulger gets there, guys... This whole network up and down the line knew he was coming. So they knew he was coming from this place in Oklahoma. There must be this crazy inmate network. How do they know so quickly? I know cell phones are a valuable piece of equipment in prison. And a lot of inmates have them stashed in their cell and all that. So I guess that's how it goes. But when I said that this Hazleton prison in West Virginia was stocked 
with convicted murderers within organized crime. I'm not kidding. And just in general, guys, this prison at Hazleton had something crazy like three murders in 40 days at this prison. It's a violent place. So whoever handled Bulge's transfer from Florida to that clearinghouse to West Virginia, I guarantee you nobody lost their job in all this. I bet there hasn't even been a day's suspension. All right, guys, let me take you up to the day before this homicide. So the homicide occurs on October 30th, 2018. So I guess we're looking at the 29th, October 29th, 2018. Bulger arrives at Hazleton Prison in West Virginia, and you've got to go through a whole process, paperwork and all this, and he did that. And he is supposed to be in protective custody. I just don't know how that really goes. Does he immediately go into protective custody? Because he did have a cellmate assigned to Jim Bulger. So he's 89 years old. He gets a cellmate. He gets there on the 29th, has to do paperwork and all this. And his evening seems to go okay, except people are talking about rats on the tier, you know, basically taunting Jim Bulger that he's a rat and all this. So that goes down. It's probably kind of a rough night. I don't know how he handles it. But the next morning at 6 a.m., that's when the doors open in the prison and you can get up and start your routine. A lot of people have jobs in prison they go to work, they go to chow hall and all this. But at 6 a.m., boom, the doors open. So when this happened, Jim Bulger's cellmate becomes scarce. Beelines right out of the cell and I think off the pod entirely, but I'm not sure. But at a minimum, he wasn't in the cell. And then Jim Bulger was accosted by at least two members of organized crimes of various factions, and we have their identities. Let me just tell you how the attack goes. There was another kid who was there on a shorter beef doing like eight years at Hazleton. He acted as the lookout, and this is all alleged. It's not proven, so everybody from this point forward is innocent until proven guilty because there hasn't been a trial yet. I know you're shocked, right? So these two members of organized crimes from different factions, from Massachusetts, guys, organized crime from Massachusetts, that's where they put Whitey Bulger. That's how on the ball the federal government is. So the cellmate takes off, and that leaves Whitey Bulger there by himself. Bulger is confined to a wheelchair, but he can get up and move around. He can't walk well, but if he's within the cell and all that, he really doesn't have to be in the chair, but he did spend a lot of time in it. So he wasn't doing well health-wise. He was 89 years old. He didn't walk well, and he was pretty frail, and he was said to have heart problems. So any physical activity would tire him out pretty quickly. So after the cellmate takes off, these two members of organized crime go into Jim Bulger's cell 
and at least one of them has a padlock, a larger padlock in a sock. And this is a notorious prison weapon. And you put it in the sock or a few socks and tie it up so it doesn't break. And you use it to bludgeon people. Typically, you can use it from a distance. That's why prisoners like it. But this is what happened on this day, October 30th, 2018. One of these two gentlemen starts swinging this at Whitey Bulger, hitting him in the head, neck, face. And the other person has a prison shiv. And they really go to town on James Whitey Bulger. It's estimated the attack takes between five and seven minutes to complete. And what happened was this. He was beaten with that lock and killed. And during that process, he was stabbed several times with this shiv. I don't know if it was post-mortem or when Bulger was alive, but they pretty successfully gouged his eyes out of his head and cut his tongue off. That wasn't reported for quite some time. That took a bit of digging to get to, but that is in fact the case. They took his eyes out and most of his tongue. Then they wrapped him up like he was sleeping using that bedroll that they give you when you get admitted to Hazleton. So they kind of wrapped him up in a blanket, put his head on a pillow, and left. At about 8.30 a.m., they come to the cell. They must do some type of check, and that's when they got to James Whitey Bulger. I think at a certain point in that morning, you've got to stand up and be counted. And they were looking to count Bulger, and he was nowhere to be found. Whomever did this had at least a two-hour head start, and they were obviously fellow prisoners, right? So even for Hazleton, guys, this was a brutal, brutal homicide. And I know I just related to you, but did Jim Bulger deserve to go out like that? Probably. There's a case to be made that he did, that that was karma, right? Because we know of at least two women he personally choked to death and some safe cracker. I know he pulled the teeth out of someone's head and choked him until he begged to be shot in the head. So James Bulger was on the other side swinging that sock, you know, at least figuratively throughout his whole life. So did he deserve it? I don't know. There's a case to be made for yes. So this hit the newspapers like a ton of bricks. It was a firestorm. It's another black eye for the federal prison system. Shortly after this, I know you guys will remember Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide in federal custody. And that is, I guess, a little suspicious to this day, right? But they always have the defense. The feds always have the defense. Hey, we didn't kill anybody. We're just super incompetent. All right, guys, so let's get to the suspects in this. And again, they're from Metro Boston and the western section of Massachusetts, the Springfield area. The first guy is Paul, I know I'm going to butcher the last name, DeCollegero, D-E-C-O-L-O-G-E-R-O. And that was Paul J., Paul J. His dad 
is also in that life and I believe is in prison as well. And the other guy who has been indicted in this case, both of these guys have been indicted, is Freddie Gies, G-E-A-S. And he is out of Western Massachusetts by way of Springfield. He was a member of a mob faction, and he personally, at least according to his indictment, murdered the Springfield Godfather or Capo there, Al Bruno, Big Al Bruno, and a guy believed to be Bruno's bodyguard in 2003. And this guy, Gies, at that time was on a murder spree. The Springfield crew out there, I believe they answered more to New York than Rhode Island, but at that time, they felt like they weren't getting the respect that was due them. And this Gies and the rest of his crew had dug several holes in these remote parts of Springfield and Agawam. And they ended up killing these two people, and they thought this would make them look better within the mob, right? Go figure. But he had been down since 2003. The underboss out of Springfield ended up flipping. That's how Gies got caught. And he ratted the whole family out and went into, you know, federal witness protection, I guess. But Paul DiCollegiero was from Burlington, Massachusetts, and he was part of a faction that favored Rhode Island. And it was quite a violent crew. And Paul DiCollegiero here in this story, he was serving a 25-year sentence. He played a part in trying to kill a girl that this organized crime crew thought had too much information. He had gotten some heroin, I believe, and told this girl it was cocaine and tried to get her to overdose. She didn't overdose. And after that, somebody else within this crew broke the girl's neck. But he got caught up on that first offense with the heroin and also, I think he had some racketeering stuff. So he was serving 25 years, but that was in the early 2000s. And in federal time, you have to serve at least 75% of your sentence before you're eligible for parole. So that would have been about 18 and a half years, I think. And he had to have been getting close to that. And so I don't know why you just don't keep your nose clean. Why do you give a crap about that rat bulger? But they say Freddie Gies out of Springfield hated rats. That's why he was sitting in prison. His godfather ratted him out in the whole goddamn family. So he hated rats and he was doing double life. So Freddie Gies just thought this up immediately. And Paul DiCollegiero is right there with him. But, man, he looked like he was going to get out of the joint at some point, right? He may have been out on parole by now if he didn't do this job on Bulger. There's also another kid. I believe his name is Sean McKinnon, and he served as a lookout. I don't get this goofball's reasoning either. He was serving an eight-year beef for some type of robbery out of Vermont. It may have involved guns or something. It was something to send the case federally. But he was ready to get paroled out. And after this happened, he did get out. 
And when he was indicted in this case, they took him back into the joint. He had walked out of prison. Imagine that. So I guess if there's going to be a weak link in this case, it would be McKinnon. So are they lining him up for a deal? I would think they would be. But Gies, you know, he hates rats. He won't even answer a question. His lawyer says he won't speak to the police, won't speak to the prison guards. You can't question him about anything. You already have all of his particulars, name, date of birth, where he lives. So he's got really no reason to talk to you. And he just hates the police. He hates rats. If I had to put money on who took Jim Bulger's eyes, I would put it on Mr. Gias, I think. He seems that wild. But who knows what happens in the prison cell between all these mobsters, rats, and murderers, right? You know, guys, I wanted to do this story before. The thing that kind of triggered my interest or reinterest, if that's even a word in the case, is when I heard about them taking the eyes from Bulger, you know, and then the tongue. That didn't come out for quite some time. So these guys would indicted Colagero, Gies, and McKinnon. And I think this was, I don't know, two years ago. They should have went to trial already, but I guess they're in no hurry because the two main suspects are in the joint and the other guy's on parole, so they didn't think anybody was going anywhere. But the trial's slated to begin in late 2024. So next year, who knows when, but it's a crazy long time. There's a strange amount of karma in this case for what Bulger had done. And then these guys did to him, right? It all comes around. Also, I wanted to mention, guys, Paul DiCollegero. I think it's Paul J. Paul J. DiCollegero. His old man's in that life, too, and I think he's also in the joint. I just didn't want you to get confused by them. They ran a crazy crew out of Burlington, which is kind of a quiet suburb. You wouldn't think an Italian mob faction is running out of, you know, a cul-de-sac in Burlington, you know. But in terms of the conspiracy, guys, it does seem like incompetence rather than malice. But could it be made to seem like that? I don't know. The system is so screwed up, it would be hard to tell. But incompetence, it's an easy sell for the federal government, let me tell you. So between James Whitey Bulger and Jeffrey Epstein, the federal prison service is having a bad run of it. I think you might want to take Epstein away from the loss column for the prison system and maybe turn that over to, oh, I don't know, another three-letter agency. So maybe we'll just credit them or discredit them with the Whitey Bulger fiasco. But I think that's all I have for you right now, guys. If you need to get a hold of me, it's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. Other than that, I'll leave you here and I'll get on to the next one for you. I'll see you on the flip side, all right? All right.